Luke chapter 11, specifically the verses that we're going to be studying are verses 3 and 4, but let's go ahead and read the whole prayer starting in verse 2. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Lord, just as you taught your own disciples so many hundreds of years ago, Lord, I, we pray you'd continue to teach us as your disciples today. Teach us how to pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. In the 19th century, there was a missionary by the name of Andrew Murray who wrote a book called With Christ in the School of Prayer. And that's exactly what we have going on here in Luke chapter 11. His disciples are with him in the school of prayer. There's school going on. Jesus is the instructor. He's the professor. His disciples are the students. And the course is prayer. And he's already instructed them on two major, major issues up to this point. We've studied that he has taught them who his disciples are to address in prayer. Our Father who is in heaven. As our Father, he is the intimate one, the familiar one, the approachable one, the tender, kind, loving, guiding Father. But he's not just our Father, he's our Father who is in heaven. And so because he is the one in heaven, he is the awesome, transcendent, majestic, holy, sovereign king. And he's both of those things. And his disciples need to understand that he's both father and he's both the one who is in heaven. The things that he tells them to pray about consist of six petitions. The first three are related to God's interests. The second three are related to man's interests. And last week we studied the first three. We are to pray about God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. We are to pray that God's name would be hallowed or sanctified or set apart in the world. We are to pray that his kingdom would come, meaning that it would increase and grow and spread throughout the world. We are to pray that his will would be done on the earth as it's done in heaven. But that brings us to the second three petitions. The first three are about God and his glory. The second three petitions are about man and his need. And in the second three petitions, we find him teaching us to pray about food for our body, fellowship with our God, and faithfulness in our temptations. Now, when he, when he talks about our Father who is in heaven, the fact that he's God who is in heaven, that specifically re relates to the first three petitions. Because he is exalted and in heaven, it is only right that we would spend the focus and first part of our time in prayer interceding for his name to be hallowed and his kingdom to, to come and his will to be done. But because he is father, that relates to the second three petitions. As our father, he delights to meet our needs. He delights as his children to come to him and ask him to meet their needs and then to bestow the answer to those needs upon them. So this morning, 
what we want to do is take a look at the second three petitions having to do with man and his needs. And notice the difference when we come to verse 3 and 4. In verse 2, it's all about your. When you pray, say, Father, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's all about your, God. But when we come to verse 3, everything changes. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It changes from your to us and our and we. The first half of this prayer is very God-centered. It's all about God and His glory. The second half is man-centered. It's all about His people and their needs and how God will meet those needs when we pray to Him about them. So we are going to study these three petitions, a sort of sample or a model petitions that, that show us the categories of thought that the Lord would have us to pray about. Food for our body, fellowship with our God, and faithfulness in our temptations. So number one, he teaches to, us to pray for food for our body. He says, give us each day our daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, let's just try to understand what he meant by that. The word daily is a very, very interesting word. It only occurs one time in the whole New Testament, right there. It occurs in the Lord's Prayer, and that's it. So when people interpret that word, it's difficult because they have nothing to go on except for one place it is found. Until fairly recently, a papyrus fragment was found in extra-biblical literature, not in Scripture, and it turns out to be a woman's shopping list. <laughs> and in her shopping list, she is trying to remind herself to pick up something and buy something that she needs for the coming day. And she uses this word. So this word means, give us each day our bread for the coming day. So if you were to pray this prayer in the morning, you'd be praying that the Lord would give you your bread for the rest of that day. If you prayed it in the evening, you'd be praying that the Lord would give you your bread for the next day following, or tomorrow. So that's what this verse is all about. We're praying that God would meet our needs, provide our bread, our physical needs for the coming day. Now, I want to draw some implications for each one of these petitions. The very first one that I think just is right on the surface of the text is that the prosperity gospel that has arisen over the last 50 or 60 years here in America is erroneous and unbiblical. Now, why do I say that? Well, because Jesus did not teach us to name and claim gold and lands and silver and livestock and farms and houses. He says, humbly come to God and pray each day that he'll give you your daily bread. We're not demanding. We're humbly asking the Lord to give us, we're dependent upon him, give us what we need, our basic necessities for this particular day. We're not to pray for tomorrow's bread or next week's rent or a year from now our tax payment. He's teaching us to be dependent upon God every day and pray every day for those days' needs. But the prosperity gospel that has arisen teaches us that God wants everybody, of, wants all of his children to be wealthy. He wants them to be well off. 
He wants them to have BMWs and vacation homes and yachts and lots of money in the bank. It's funny because Jesus didn't have lots of money in the bank and Jesus didn't even own a home. They say if you're not wealthy, it must be because you have a lack of faith or some sin in your life. Well, Jesus must have had a lack of faith then because Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was an itinerant rabbi, one who went from place to place preaching the truth of the kingdom of God and then showing the signs of the kingdom and healing and casting out demons. The thing that strikes me as, as the worst part about this particular teaching today is I, I believe it promotes sin in the lives of people because it teaches them to be materialistic, to be greedy, to be covetous, and to be discontented with their lot in life. Those are all sins. And when you tell people God wants you wealthy and you're not, that's what it's going to breed within you. And so my counsel to you this morning is if you turn on the TV and see Kenneth Copeland or Creflo Dollar or Joel Osteen or Paul and Jan Crouch or Benny Hinn, turn the station or turn your TV off. Might even be better just to turn the whole thing off. Get out the Word of God and talk with the Lord. Let Him fill your soul. Um, it's, it's not sound doctrine. It's diseased doctrine. That's the first implication. Number two, God is not only concerned about His glory, He's also concerned about our needs. Else He wouldn't teach us to pray for our daily bread. Now, he mentions his own glory first because it's much more important than our needs, but he doesn't despise us bringing our needs to him. In fact, I believe that the Lord delights to answer those prayers and to shower his love and tenderness upon us. He's not only concerned about our soul, that's the most important thing, but he's also concerned about our body. We know that because Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. He was casting out demons from the bodies of people. He multiplied fish and loaves because he was concerned that those people would faint if they tried to walk back being so hungry they hadn't eaten all day. They were going to faint along the way. So he was concerned about them. He was concerned about the widow of Nain. She had just lost her son who was her only means of support. And so here the Lord raised up that son, gave him back to his mother, and now she had a means of support. So the Lord is concerned not only with the great big spiritual realities, which are very important, but he's also concerned with the basic needs that we have, and he loves to come and just tenderly provide those things for us. How many times has he done something like that for you that you just sort of feel a God kiss? You know, he just shows you that he loves you. He's real. He's here. He answers prayer. He shows up in your daily life. And so I believe that we can extend the application from bread to all of our basic necessities. If you're out of a job, pray for one. If you don't have your rent money, pray God would give it to you. If you need clothing and shelter, pray. Those are necessities. Those are physical necessities that the Lord wants us to pray about and He's going to answer those prayers when we pray to Him in faith and trust Him. So... Implication number three, our food and our basic necessities are a gift from God, a gift. Because Jesus taught us to pray, give us, 
Give us each day our daily bread. I think that's probably where the tradition has arisen, don't you think, of praying and thanking God before meals? Give us this day our daily bread. And I, I think it's probably a good tradition if we, if we do it without thinking about what we're doing as just a tradition that's no good. But if we're truly thanking God every time we partake of a meal, that's a wonderful thing. Remember that the people that Jesus was speaking to lived in an agrarian society where they were farmers, they had livestock, they had cattle, they raised their own food. And they were very aware that if God did not send the rain that they needed, or the sun, or if he didn't protect them from the drought, or from the frost, there might be nothing on the table that night. They, were, they very well knew, they were absolutely dependent upon God for their food. And so when they had something to eat, they thanked God. It was a gift from God. And we ought to learn that lesson too. Maybe we're not farmers. Now I, have a, I have a son who is a farmer, and he probably understands this better than I do. But all of us, it doesn't matter if you never have planted a seed in your life. If, if you get every amount of your food from the corner grocery store, it still comes from God. It's still a gift from God because you have that food because He's provided a job for you to work. He's given you the health to work the job. He's provided in one way or another income so that you can go and buy your food. It comes from His hand. It's a gift from our Father. So we need to just remember that and give Him the thanks that He's deserving of. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And then a fourth implication. We need to learn to depend upon our Father every single day. I think that's implicit in here. Give us each day our daily bread. Does that remind you of anybody else who had to depend upon God to give them their bread every single day? The Israelites, that's right. Walking through the wilderness. Now imagine a couple million people out in the middle of the desert and they're there for 40 years. What in the world are they going to eat? I mean, they might have brought some provisions with them when they left Egypt, but they're going to eat those up within the next first week. Then what are they going to eat? Well, God provided, didn't he? He rained down heaven. I mean, he rained down bread from heaven, which was called manna, this flake-like stuff that they found all over the ground. It was honey. It was like, had coriander seeds. And this is what they ate every day, and it sustained them. And it gave them all the energy and all the vitamins, everything they needed to travel until they got to the promised land. But it's interesting that God did not allow them to, to gather up enough manna for two days or three days or four days. They had to go out every single day and gather it up for that day. If they tried to gather too much, remember what would happen? It would breed worms and grow foul and it was impossible to eat it. God didn't want them storing it up. He wanted them coming and depending upon him every day. They open that tent flap and look out. There's my manna for this morning. There it is again. And God wants us in the same way to be looking to him every single day. You know, I think we're at a disadvantage because we're so much more well off than most of the people of the world. 
where we have money in the bank, we've got food in our refrigerators to last a week, we've got food in our cabinets, we don't really need to trust God for the following day, we're at a disadvantage. They were at a real advantage to see God move and provide every single day. So we need to learn to depend upon God our Father instead of being afraid of what the future holds. Jesus taught in Matthew 6.34, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And isn't it true that we can become worried and anxious about something that might happen tomorrow or next month or next year? You know, we're afraid there's going to be a, a nuclear war or there's going to be a terrorism attack on American soil or we're going to get cancer or our child's going to be abducted and kidnapped and taken away from us and we'll never see him again. We have these, these fears about something that might happen in the future. Jesus says, don't worry about those things. Just consider the needs of this present day. Let tomorrow take care of itself. Come to me every single day and I will supply what you need. So, food for our body. That's the first thing that we're to pray about. Secondly, fellowship with our God. Because he goes on to say in verse 4, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, what does this mean? We're supposed to come before God and ask Him to forgive us our sins. <coughs> I thought that Christians were already forgiven of their sins. If that's true, why do we come to God and ask Him to forgive us for something He's already forgiven us of? Well, we would make a mistake if we thought that Jesus here is referring to an unsaved person asking God to forgive them in order that they might be saved. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking to his disciples and teaching his disciples how to pray. And they are to pray, Our Father. So these are believers. These are not lost people. These are believers. And he's teaching believers to ask God to forgive them. Now... First of all, let's, let's examine that premise. Is it true that when a person becomes a Christian, his sins are forgiven? Or are they only forgiven as he asks for forgiveness along the way? When are his sins forgiven him? Let's look at some scripture. First of all, Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. It's in the past tense. Having forgiven. It was done. When was it done? When you were made alive together with Christ. That's talking about regeneration. When you were born again, all of your transgressions were forgiven you, according to Colossians 2.13. Okay, another one. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. Exact same thing. Your sins have been forgiven you. Or we could look at Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to be justified by faith? 
At the moment of faith, it means that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to your account. Your sins are removed and the righteousness of Christ is put to your account. When does it happen? At the point of faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith. So, my understanding of Scripture is the moment a person puts his trust in Jesus Christ, his sins are legally gone. They are forgiven him. And not just the past sins, all of his sins are gone, even the ones he will yet commit. Justification is a permanent status. It doesn't come and go. You don't come in and out of justification. Like today I'm justified, tomorrow I'm not. I have to get saved all over. That's not how it works. Once you are justified, it is a permanent status. It's a legal declaration that you are not guilty, but rather that you are the righteousness of God in Christ for all eternity. Okay, so if that is true, then why does Jesus teach justified people who are already forgiven to keep on asking for forgiveness? I think the answer is this, after having thought about this a lot this week. I think the answer is that he's not talking to us about legal forgiveness or judicial forgiveness. He's not talking to us about coming to God as a judge in order to wipe our criminal slate clean. He's talking about us coming to a father who we, we have offended, who is going to renew fellowship with us as we ask for forgiveness. This isn't judicial, this is parental. That's why we have 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, John later says in the same letter, we've already been forgiven. Well, then what are we talking about? It's not judicial. It's parental. We have offended our Father. And in order to have unbroken fellowship and communion with God, you have to confess your sins and ask Him to forgive you so that there's no breach in the relationship. There's no rift between you and your relationship with God. Maybe it would help if I tried to put this in an illustration. Now, I have a grown son named Jonathan. He's 28 years old. But let's say we move back in time about 18 years when he's living under my roof. And he does something really bad. Let's say he, he gets drunk. He brings a girl home. He sneaks her into his bedroom. And in the morning, I find him with his girlfriend. He's drunk. He's got whiskey bottles all over the place. And so I'm angry because he's broken the house rules. And I confront him. And rather than humbly and meekly saying, you know, Dad, you're right, he gets angry. And he hits me in the face. He spits in my face. He cusses me out. He runs through the front door and slams it behind him. Now, if that's the case, I don't think anytime soon I'm going to be welcoming my son back into my home. There's a rift in that relationship, isn't there? He's disrespected his father. He's broken the house rules. In fact, if a, if a son did that in the Old Testament, he'd be killed. He'd be stoned for striking his father and, and, and then swearing, cursing at his father. Serious offenses. But if my son were to have a change of heart and to come to me and say, Dad, I don't know what got into me. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. Please forgive me. I'd welcome him with open arms. I'd give him a big hug. See, that's what's happening. He never stopped being my son, right? I don't care what he does. Jonathan will always be my son. 
Nothing will ever change that status of sonship. But there are times when there are breaches in the relationship where confession of sin has to be acknowledged and asking for forgiveness. And that's what takes place in the life of the Christian. We'll always be God's children if we've been saved by His blood and justified by faith. But when we sin, we need to come to Him and ask for forgiveness and confess our sins to Him. Now, what are the implications from this? What are the implications? Number one, we must keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts. What that means is as soon as you sin, go to God and confess it. Don't wait. Have you ever done that? You commit sin, but you don't want to deal with it. You know that if you confess it to God, God's going to make you stop doing it. And you would kind of like to keep doing that thing, at least toy with it a little bit. Because you're starting to drift from God. That's a very bad sign when that's happening. My encouragement, my exhortation to you this morning is that as soon as you sin, try to, try to reduce it from one hour to 15 minutes to five minutes to one minute to five seconds. As soon as you're conscious that you've sinned, tell God immediately and confess it. Now that word confess in the Greek is homo legeo. Homo means the same thing. Legeo means to speak. This word means to speak the same thing. So when you confess your sins, you're speaking the same thing about that sin that God speaks. What does God say about your sin? It's evil. It's wrong. It's breaking His law. So what you and I do is we come to God and we just don't say something like, well, Lord, please forgive me. We say, Lord, what I did was wrong. I agree with you. It was wrong. I ought not to have done it. Please forgive me and change me. See, there's real confession, real repentance taking place. We can tend to be like Adam and Eve when we sin. Remember what they did? They hid. <laughs> they, they hid among the trees of the garden. Instead of walking in the light, like John says, exposing themselves to God, they hid from God. And when God confronted them, do you remember what they did? Well, it was a woman you gave me, Lord. She gave to me and I ate. And she said, oh, Lord, it was the snake. It was that serpent. We, we're always passing the buck, deferring our responsibility onto somebody else. And we grow into spiritual maturity when we start taking full responsibility for our sin in the sight of God and not shirking it and not saying it was someone else's fault, but just coming out and say, Lord, I was the one. I was wrong. Please forgive me. So how does that, what does that look like? Well, for me, it might look like I've been rude with someone in my family, my mother-in-law or my wife. I've been rude or I've been impatient or I've been critical. I know I've had this wrong spirit. So as soon as I recognize that's happening, I say, Lord, I'm wrong. That's, please forgive me. Please wash me. Help me not to be that way, Lord. And it's done. As soon as that happens, the smile of God returns. The breach is removed. He's, his embrace is there. We're welcomed into his full fellowship. And so here's the deal. What we're looking for is unbroken communion with God. That's what we want. That's the goal. And it can only happen when as we sin, we confess it, repent of it, forsake it, and move on. And it's... It's back to full embrace again. So that's the first implication. Second one, 
Unforgiveness will impede our relationship with God. If you have an unforgiving spirit towards somebody else, that is going to impede your relationship with God. Because Jesus says, here in Luke 11, Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Our forgiving other people is related to and connected to God's continued unbroken fellowship with us. Which means that if there's somebody that I'm not forgiving, there's going to be a block when I try to go to the Lord. I can't really walk with Him in the joy, in the life that I would like to have because there's something between me and God because there's something between me and this other person. Have you ever experienced that where you just, someone did you wrong and you're having a really hard time letting it go? Well, Jesus is teaching us if you want the smile of God in your life, you have to. You have to let it, let it go. They're connected. Over in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says that a husband's connection to God in prayer is connected also to his honoring his wife. He says, honor your wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Did you know your prayer life will be hindered if your relationship with your wife is not right? It's the same principle. So it, takes, it teaches us to take careful heed that we don't allow an unforgiving spirit to come into our heart and take root there. And if we start to see that taking place, do battle against it in Jesus' name. Fight it. Fight it with the promises of God's word. Look to the gospel, how Jesus Christ forgave you a million times more sins and more grievous sins than that person has done to you. How can you hold this thing back from them? So we are to ask for food for our body, fellowship with our God, and then faithfulness in our temptations. Because he says in verse 4, and lead us not into temptation. And then Matthew's version also adds this, but deliver us from evil. Now at first glance, this also is confusing. Isn't it? Lead us not into temptation. Well, I didn't know God would lead people into temptation. Why would he do that? Doesn't God want us to live in righteousness? After looking at this and thinking about this, I think what's going on here is it's a figure of speech called litotes, L-I-T-O-T-E-S. It's a figure of speech where in order to express a truth, you negate the opposite of that truth. In other words, if someone says, not a few, what do they really mean? They mean many. Sometimes the Bible will use figures of speech like that. So when Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, what he probably means is, lead us into righteousness. It's the exact opposite of that negated expression. And he then goes on at the end of that phrase to tell us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Delivering us from evil is the same thing as leading us not into temptation. What Jesus is telling us to pray about is, God, give me a holy life. Help me to overcome temptation. Lead me into righteous paths. Help me, Lord, to pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. That's what he's telling us to do. We have a need for holiness. We have a need for sanctification. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, 
gives us the heart longing of every Christian. 2 Corinthians 5.9 Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, what? To be pleasing to Him. Paul says we, all of us, all of us Christians, me and you in Corinth, all of us have an ambition. Is this your ambition? If you're a Christian, Paul says it is. All of us have as our ambition, whether we are with the Lord in heaven or whether we're here in, on the earth, alive here, this is it, to be pleasing to Him. And so the first implication I see here is that the Christian longs to be holy. If you don't long to be holy, that means you're probably not a Christian. If you only want to escape hell, but don't want to escape sin, you're probably not a Christian. Within the heart of a Christian is a new nature. And this nature longs for holiness. Because this new nature has been born of the Spirit. And the Spirit is holy. It's the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit has come into me. I've become a partaker of the divine nature. The divine nature is a nature that is holy. Every child of God wants to be holy. He wants to be perfect. He would be perfect today if he could. But because we're fallen and we carry around these bodies of flesh, we're not perfect. But if we could snap our fingers and make a decision today, how many of you would say, yes, I would never sin again if I could just do that? If, I, if it was up to me, that's what I want. I want to be holy as God is holy. That's what happens in the new birth. And if that's missing... My friends, be concerned that maybe you're not one of His yet. So the Christian longs to be holy. Second implication, the Christian is absolutely dependent upon God to become holy. Jesus teaches us to pray for it. That means we can't snap our fingers and do it. <laughs> Have you ever tried? Okay, I'm going to be holy today. How long did it last? Five minutes, if you're lucky? <laughs> Until you and your wife start talking about something and then she says something you didn't like and you're not holy anymore, are you? Because you lost your temper, you become impatient, you become rude, critical, all these things just flow from the fallenness of man. We are absolutely dependent upon God to be holy. Now, how do we know that? Because God's Word tells us. Romans 8.13, Paul says, If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. You hear that? By the Spirit. That means you can't do it by your flesh. No matter how hard you try, how much you want to, you're not going to be able to do it in your strength. You're going to have to do this by the Spirit. Another scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Now, verse 8, so, in other words, therefore, because God has called us for the purpose of sanctification, he who rejects this sanctification is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What does that tell you? Why does God give the Holy Spirit? To sanctify us. Holiness is a big deal in the Christian life. If it's not a big deal to us, we're missing it. 
It's a big deal to God. It was enough. God thought it was a big enough deal to send the third person of the Trinity into your life, into your body, to dwell in you, to make you holy. And then Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12 and 13. Paul says there, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, become holy. Be sanctified. For, always notice those connecting words when you read your Bible. They're so important. What does the word for imply? Here's the reason coming. Here's the basis upon which that exhortation has just been made. Work out your salvation because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now we are called to work out our salvation because God is working it in. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is working in you salvation. And so you're to work it out. You are to cooperate with God the Holy Spirit who dwells in you to become holy so that you become meek and humble and forgiving and kind and gentle. So that you forsake the sins in your life like lust or anger, wrath, intemperance, lack of self-control, and instead produce the fruit of love and peace, joy, patience, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's a holy man who's producing these fruits of the Spirit and no longer bearing the fruit of the flesh, the works of the flesh. That's what Jesus is telling us to pray for. And he hasn't left us alone in this battle against our flesh. We've already learned he's given us his Holy Spirit to do battle against the flesh. He has also given us his word. The promises of his word. When you're tempted, my encouragement to you is to go to the Word of God and draw upon the strength of God's Word, His promises that He has made to you, and begin to think about them, meditate on them, pray through them, until your mind begins to change and your heart begins to change concerning that sin. Especially, meditate on promises that tell you that Jesus is more satisfying than the sin you're in. If it's porn... Meditate on those scriptures that will tell you that Jesus is much more satisfying than looking at this naked woman. If it's shopping sprees, maybe some of you have that as your temptation, or second and thirds on cheesecake and ice cream, or illicit drugs and alcohol. I don't know what your temptations are, but whatever it is, find the promises of God. Psalm 16. Let me just read that to you. This is a great promise. You will make known to me the path of life. This is 1611. You'll make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. 
Now you might get a little bit of fleshly scintillation from looking at lustful things. But it has nothing in comparison to fullness of joy and eternal pleasure. See, God, Thomas Chalmers in the 1800s, Scottish Presbyterian minister once preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Don't you love that title? I tried to read the sermon and it's hard to understand the sermon, but I just like the title. I think there's dynamite in that title. The Expulsive, what are we trying to expel from our life? Sin. So we need a new affection. Or we need that same affection we already have to become stronger. That's why we spend time with God every day, folks. We're trying to strengthen our affections for God and for His Word and for the things of the Spirit so they become our delight. So they become our joy. So we want to be doing this other thing rather than doing the sinful things that just knock us down. Have, have you, do you experience that when you find joy over here doing the righteous things? That's what God wants. The expulsive power of a new affection. Go to God daily, and that's your goal, to become happy in God, to become joyful in God, to see Him as altogether lovely, supremely your treasure. And if you can do that, porn's going to drift out of your life. What do I want that for? When I can have God. When I can have the truth of His Word. When I can walk, walk in righteousness and have this holy joy and experience that, why would I want to de denigrate myself and take myself through the mud and these kinds of sinful pleasures. There's better pleasures that God has for us. So, to become holy, we need the Holy Spirit, we need the Word of God and its promises, and we need prayer. Those are our weapons to become holy, and Jesus says, use them. Pray, Lord, don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Make me a holy man of God. Robert Murray McShane, used to say, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. Meaning that God can't use an unholy minister very much. But oh, a man who's holy, who walks with God, who lives with God, who joys in God, he's an awful, he didn't mean awful like terrible, he mean awesome, an awesome weapon in the hand of God. So Jesus has taught us to pray for our physical needs. If you have physical needs, don't be embarrassed to take those to the Lord. The Lord delights in hearing your prayer. Come to Him. If you need a better job so that you can get an apartment that has more than one bedroom, I would say pray about it. Seems like that's a need to me. If you, if you can't afford to pay your electric bill and you have no heat, seems like that's a need. Pray about that. God, I think, is going to answer that prayer. If you don't have anything in your cupboards and you have no money to buy food, pray. God will provide for you. So, food for your body. Secondly, fellowship with your God. Don't allow sin to break your fellowship with God. Your communion with God is more important than hanging on to this sin. It's more precious. If you have to choose between God and sin, choose God. Let the sin go. Hold on to Him. If you go down this other path, you've done it before, you know this by experience, don't you? You're going to wind up guilty. You're going to wind up wondering why in the world you did that. 
when it's so much more beneficial and pleasant and joyful and righteous on this side of the fence. Choose God. Choose God. And when you do sin, immediately go to Him, with, have short accounts, disclose it, confess it, get it out, and resume God's favor. And then thirdly, what are your temptations this morning that you're facing? Gambling? <laughs> Maybe that's a temptation for some. Overdoing it when it comes to alcohol. Not drinking in moderation. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's uh, an inordinate desire for sweets. Maybe it's the temptation to lose your temper. Maybe it's just being an impatient person. I confess that's me. I'm really working on that one. <laughs> but we're all tempted to do those things that are going to drag us down in the mud. Pray. Lord, don't lead me into temptation. In other words, lead me into righteousness. Deliver me from the evil in my life. Deliver me from these temptations. I want to have victory over temptation. I want to honor you and please you with my life. May God burn these human needs, these human desires into our soul so that we become prayer warriors and we bring these things to Him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that Your Word would instruct Your precious people today. The Lord, we would pray about our needs, pray about communion, pray about holiness. We pray for deliverance from sin, Lord. And I, I just want to pray for those in the congregation today who are struggling with temptation that's overcoming them. And they can't seem to break free. In Jesus' name, Lord, would you free them? Extend the power of your Holy Spirit, And Lord, if there's those, those people here who really can't call you Father because they've never become your child by being born of the Holy Spirit, I pray for them. Lord, would your Spirit awaken them and sweetly engender faith and repentance within their hearts. Open their eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ that they would come running to Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.